RPS powered by Seth. Welcome to the Weekly Review, the show where we try to make sense of a planet populated by civilizations that seem to be on the verge of collapsing. Ah, the end may seem nigher than it has ever been, but that doesn't mean we have to miss out on wonderful things that keep our minds busy, nourished, and entertained. Living in the moment is all we can do and should do. Love thy neighbor, create warm memories, and keep each other company through the darkness. I can fortunately state I am not alone. With me in this trek through the wilderness is Ben Cardew. Like a 90s pop tune, you are never alone. <laughs> Further on, we'll be connecting with Marvai Verdu in a remote and unspecified location. And Captain Crack himself, Andre 5000, is manning the controls. Also, joining us remotely, we'll have the pleasure of speaking to Ariana Abecasis, who is about to unleash her new album, Adios No Es Para Siempre. To kick off, here's a bit of a song from our album of the week, South London's very own Shame. Well, shame from our album of the week, their second one, uh, which we shall be talking about further along in the show. The album is called Drunk Tank Pink, and I, for one, am very enamored with it. Anyway, someone else who is about to release her new album, Adios No Es Para Siempre, is Catalan artist Ariana Abecasis. It was recorded in Vic with her regular collaborator, Joan Borras, and mastered in the US by Joe Laporta, whose credits include work with Fleet Foxes, Shawn Mendes, and FKA Twigs. Ariana Abecasis delivers an album full of wonder and celestial textures that leave you yearning for more. We have her on the line, on the hangout. Hola, Ariana. Hola, hello, how are you? Very well. Uh, congratulations on this record. It's such a pleasure to talk to you and to and to finally meet you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me here. Well, this is a very solid achievement considering that it's your second album. It sounds very classy and sophisticated from start to finish. A very natural progression from your previous album of five years ago, Philosophades. Philos did I pronounce that right? Sorry, did I, I, I didn't the, listen to you well the, the, the end. Your previous album, did I? The, yeah. the, is it pronounced Philosophades or Philosophades? Philosophades. Philosophades. Um, what helped you evolve as a composer and co-producer of your own music this time around? Well, many things, you know. I, I was a little bit like um, overwhelmed of many things five years ago. I was mm, doing many, many music and I needed just like a pose like a like a moment just for myself and and I traveled and I just discovered myself and I don't know like many artists my own life I don't know yeah 
And and well, it's it sounds like your music sounds like a very modern strand of melancholy pop that sits very closely. It can remind people of uh, maybe James Blake or FKA Twigs. How did you arrive at this sound? Well, I was inspired by, by these artists that you already mentioned, and and also by I don't know like classic artists, also classical music, also um, Queen, Supertramp. I know many many artists that I really love, and I've been listening to it since I'm very young. And you know, sometimes uh, when we talk about music, it's very common to say, "Oh, that's my reference." You know, this is the artist that I that I've listened to, but. For me, the most inspiration is the things that happen to my life and the way I see, I see and I listen to to myself and the music. Uh-huh. What what kind of music were you were you into? But when you discovered that you wanted to become a musician, what kind of music were you listening to back then? Wow. Well, well, I think I. I I discovered that I wanted to be a musician maybe when I was a teenager, maybe I was 12 or 13 and I was uh, studying classical piano and so I don't know, I was just into classical music and the pop artists that I used to listen was like the typical ones, you know, Stoppa, La Oreja de Van Gogh <laughs> and all these artists <laughs> and yeah, that was my, my inspiration at that time. Yeah, very, yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh so, uh, I've got my I've own got echo because I've opened up a, another, another Google, Google Meet so I can so see you from my computer. My com- <laughs> good Lord, Johan, what, what, what is going on? <laughs> uh, Yo, Johan, I'll tell you, hi, this is Ben, how are you doing? Basically, um, one thing that, you're, that we want to ask is like, when you're, everything in the project is like really, really fully formed, basically. You've got the album, you've got the visuals, the imagery, the, con- the concept. Um, and we were thinking it reminds us a lot of Botticelli's version of The Birth of Venus. Uh, is that is that something you're channeling? Channeling? What's channeling? Channeling, something deliberate. Canalizando. Oh, channeling, like... Um, yes, you know, I was inspired um, about, you know, this melancholic world and I was just thinking about what are the topic of my songs, you know, what, what are they talk about. And love is, is and pureness and beauty is, is something that I'm really inspired by. And, you know, Venus and on this, you know, magic world and the uh, deities is something that I, I don't know, the mystic world, it's something that very, it attracts me so much. And, and when we wanted to do this visual uh, art concept, we, we wanted to, to, yeah, to say something with the with the visuals, and I think that uh, that's why we we went to to Venus and Botticelli. Uh-huh. And how important is it for you to have that whole package? You know, for it not just to be the music, but for it to be like a, a wider thing with visuals. Uh, sorry. <laughs> how important is the the creation of all the image? Uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah. in, in the balance of the obviously the importance is the music first, but how much yeah. how much how important are is taking care of the visuals and super supervising it from start to finish to you as an artist. Uh, I mean that uh, we we are in the, in a visual world, you know, more than ever before, and and also I think that music it, it has a lot to to say about images. You know, sometimes my inspiration comes about yeah, like some images or, or ideas that I have in my mind, and and I think that's. Uh, 
I like I like to complement both uh, universe. I think that it's important and also it complements you as an artist. Ah, yeah, yeah. Because there's so much you can express beyond just lyrics, right? And and musical language. Yeah. It, it's fun. It's fun. It's it's an exciting it's a time. Fun world, you know. It's a fun thing to do, you know, to make a, a I don't know a music video or, or a cover. Uh, I really love to do that. Maybe sometimes more than music, you know. It's very interesting. Ah, well, and you, after Filosofades, you you took time and you went to London to continue studying music. Is that correct? Yeah, I studied some uh, uh, production course. Yeah, there. Ah, it, so aha, uh-huh, so so you you naturally wanted to evolve into producing as you know, not just also instruments. Um, how was your time in London? Was it very inspiring? It was so fun. <laughs> I enjoyed so much. Yeah, it was very inspiring also because I I loved uh, the way that um, people there lives into the art world, and yeah. I don't know. I, I had a lot of fun and I met a lot of artists, and it was a, a nice moment for me. Do you think it's uh, it, it, like when you're back in a city like Barcelona, which is incredibly artistic? But do you think the artists believe it more in London or in or in other cities? You know how that some sometimes that can affect you. You know, you you can empower yourself when you hang out with other artists, and they really do believe in themselves because artists seem to always be plagued with um, what they call the, uh, like, uh, what do you call it? The imposter syndrome? No, where, where you have to create your own project, you have to sell yourself. And sometimes if you've, if you've not got like a label and people behind you like saying, yeah, 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 like agreeing with you, you know, it can be very scary. Did you ever go through that? And, and was London helpful in that way? You know, my own experience here in Barcelona before I went to London, it was a little bit like, I felt that here the world is very small, you know. We all know each other. I knew many artists here and and I don't know, I felt like a little bit limited, you know, artistically. So when I went there, you know, it's a very big city and, and music there, you know, it's been part of the culture. And here we don't have, you know, yeah. as much as, as there, you know, the culture in our, in our souls. So it was very, very inspiring, yeah, and very, I don't know, like very nice for me. It's funny because... It opened my mind. It's funny because whenever you speak to, or you, you see how Americans do it, you know, Americans, they're always up for business, right? They always believe themselves. If you say you're a singer, you go to a party, no one doubts you. Everyone's like, oh, cool, awesome. Yeah. And they want to be your friend. And they're like, even if they don't know anything about you. Whereas I noticed that in, in Spain, is verdad, there's a bit of that... You're always, um, yeah. people are always looking at you through the side. It's like, oh, what? You're a singer, are you? <laughs> really? You know? <laughs> so true. And in London, I think that what really shocked me is that when you, even if you are not a great artist, or even if you are starting, or if you don't do a good job, people go to you and say, wow, you, you did a great job. Thank you very much for singing for me. And it was like very touched. I, I, yeah, I feel, I felt very nice. But being a classically trained uh, pianist, um, do, uh, and you're, you're you're fusing it incredibly well with with the album you've done, you you can tell you can tell that there is a there is a you you have a very strong academic pr- um, uh, formation behind it, right? Um, would you like to continue also 
compaginando? How do you say sharing your career in in both worlds? Like instead of always combining, would you be willing to go back to just the classical format because it's a different kind of world, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's very weird. Many people ask me this question because maybe you know from outside. You know, you see these two worlds like as very different, right? But you know, classical music is in the DNA of the music that we are doing now. So it was the, the, the starting point. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe yes. Maybe in the future. You know, sometimes I enjoy myself playing piano at my home. And but I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to do a classical album sometimes. But. Everything possible. <laughs> It's because it fascinates me. You know, I, I remember long ago when when you'd go into like a, a big record store. You know, just the classical music section. Sometimes, like in Tower Records, I think it was in New York. It was one whole planta, one whole uh, floor, right? Yeah. And and you realize it's like wow, it's just a totally different industry, a totally different audience. The way yeah, right? the way classical musicians tour and everything. It's it's not. It's it's it's. Is, are there any similarities with uh, the rock and roll world from your perspective? I, I, I'm sure that many rock and roll artists or many, I don't know, like heavy metal artists listen to classical music. I'm sure of that. So I, I don't think that it's a, it's a world apart of each other, but I think that it's the way that in, it's in the way that we sell this music and, and And also, I think that it has a lot to say with uh, with class, with social classes, you know, because classical music, you know, in, in the word class, classical, you know, it's something that it it belongs to, to the kings, it belongs to the to people with money. Mm. And, and nowadays, it, it's still like this. And I think that we, it's time to break this. And I think that now most of my friends, they listen to classical music as they listen to pop music. Um. The other day I watched a, mo a Disney film called Soul. I don't know if you've uh, watched it. Soul. Yeah, it's a Pixar <laughs> no. movie. It's it's very beautiful and it but but it's about jazz musicians among other things. And there's a thing about it, uh, you know, the, the, there's a moment where the 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 protagonist he's being um, invited to sing with this very incredible um, other jazz musician, and she says to him, you know, bring a very good suit. And it reminded me that both in classical music and in jazz, you know, it's very important uh, that you that there's like a uniform, no, uh, come elegant, yeah. come well dressed. Obviously, in rock and roll as well, and in pop music, and you know, costume, and so my well, my question is: Are you gonna, since you've taken care of the imagery for this album, uh, so so delicately, do you plan on creating a spectacle around it? Even though touring is going to be very different this year, but uh, are you are you taking this into account like you would in a classical setting? I I, I would love to to do that. You know, I'm I'm working on it and. I would love to offer something, something special, you know, um, with the with the resources that I have, you know, mm -hmm. because now I'm starting, so I'm, I I don't have any everything that I would like to 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 have, right? But I don't think I'm going to appear with a with a long dress like classical pianist. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I struggled so much, you know, when I was a classical pianist, I struggled so much to to dress up like you know like a classical pianist. That was very difficult for me. <laughs> 
That's that's what I was that that's what I tried to arrive at. Yeah, exactly. The the there's yeah. always that look, isn't it? The cla- the when I think of um well, I can't I I don't know. Uh, I, I can't think of any names. I was going to say Diana Kroll, but she's more jazz. <laughs> Um, but, and the she's classical a classical revolution hasn't reached you yet. Has <laughs> not, no, not, not, not contemporary classics. But I remember that beautiful channel. Wasn't there? And it's, it must still exist. There's a, a TV channel where it's just classical music, and and you see like contemporary classical video clips, <laughs> and they, and especially from European bands or or Asian bands, you know, they, or artists. There's always this look. It's almost a mood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a mood, yeah. But I think it, it comes like it has a lot to stay with your with your own personality, you know. It's like but I don't think that I think you can be a classical artist and play classical music and dress in another way. I think that that's possible. Also James Rhodes. You know, I was like going to say James Rhodes, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's like very famous now, but but I I think that it's a very interesting thing that he's doing to classical music. But you know the the one the the you see, what we were talking about how people can have a malalete with artists, no? The, like the, every, some comments is like James Rhodes is just like this from people who know who know classical music. It's like James yes. Rhodes is a very ordinary pianist. The thing is, he does it yeah. in hipster jeans, and and it's like oh, it's novedoso. You know, it's like it's different, but it's not. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I yeah. like him. I think he's good. Like the pop culture and the, uh, the the academic culture is like two different worlds, very yeah. different. The way we think and the way that people think is very different. So it's very tricky sometimes. <laughs> Or Jamie Cullum, no, that's another example of yeah. you know a guy who's incredibly incredibly gifted and talented, but because he started wearing jeans and sneakers in his recitals, no, it's like oh this hip and dynamic, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, thank you so much for joining us, Ariana. Uh, we really think your record is very special. Uh, we we wish you the best of luck. We hope. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, yeah. We hope to see you on stage uh, as soon as possible. You're presenting it. You're actually going to be presenting it live. Uh, can you remind us the date and the location in Barcelona? Yeah, is it in March 12th? Uh huh. That's the way you say in English, right? Yeah, March 12th. Um, in Lanao, in Court Circuit. Very good. Well, congratulations. We need more live music, more than Absolutely. ever. Absolutely, yeah. Please, please. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Have a nice day. But I'm still young Is that what you want? Those shiny
British post-punk never fails to pop up when a generation needs it the most. South London four-piece shame grace our speakers with Drunk Tank Pink, their second album produced by Simeon Mobile Disco's James Ford, who famously produces most of Arctic Monkeys' albums. Uh, and this time he recorded at La Frette Studios in Paris. Coincidentally, it's where Idols recorded Ultra Mono. Their debut album, Shames, from 2018, Songs of Praise, had the fury and the chaos pertaining to their youthful selves. On this album, Ford lightens their sound up a bit more, making the kind of tunes that you can dance to, like a lot of the stuff he's produced over the years. This album has been marked by the extensive touring behind Songs of Praise and the inevitable come-down bands face when they go from sleeping rough in vans and drinking beer for breakfast to waking up in a quiet street with little to do and shopping for groceries is the day's highlight. Boy, it sounds really hard to be a rock star these days. Almost as hard as mining for lead in Ballychorus. Ugh. Jokes aside, the album was finished a year ago and was ready to be unleashed, but then, well, you know what happened. The bastard. So we've they've kept it in the refrigerator until now. Ben, what did you think of the album? It was one of those things that sort of makes me question the point of, like, music, generally. You know, because it's like, it's all right, but I just don't see... It's sort of so far removed from my world. It's like what they do, they do well, but like it has no sort of way of of, of connecting with what I do. They sound a lot like Talking Heads, but so do quite a lot of other bands these days. I mean, this this record is a bit more expansive than than the last one, um, but I wasn't I wasn't particularly blown away. Although I do like the fact they called a song "Born in Luton," which is <laughs> <laughs> don't know. Have you been to Luton? Uh, just to the airport. Yeah, which um, isn't in London, is it? No, no. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was okay. I like their their youth and their vigor. But again, it's really the kind of thing you want to hear live, isn't it? Yes. You know that that and they played what is it? This three hundred and fifty gigs, and I was really enjoying reading about all of them. And then I, I kind of felt felt bad for them because it was like, oh God, what what do you do? You know, as as a young person after doing three hundred and fifty gigs, that must be such a come down. Just going back to South London, sitting in. Uh, what, what do they call it? The, the womb. Some kind of weirdly painted room where there's loads of washing machines going on, basically. Um, I, do you know what? I, I I could have handled a bit more washing machine, a bit more weirdness, you know? Mm. You should have, like, connected the two. But yeah. you were a big fan, right? I, I I was lucky enough to see them live in Benicassim a few years ago when they were on the touring Songs of Praise, and I was, I was amazed. You know, they had the energy... The singer is incredibly charismatic on stage. He really is a showman. They're in, they're constantly throwing themselves into the audience, rounding them up. The musicians are constantly... The guitarists were running uh, from left to right on the stage all the time, throwing their guitars on the floor, you know, really thrashing it out like you, like you want to do when you're un- under 20. And, and I hope they don't lose that. Sometimes I worry that uh, when a band becomes known for these kind of live shows... As they get on, uh, sometimes they have to tone it down a little bit. Uh, I remember a band like Yeah Yeah Yeahs, for instance. Karen O used to be this force of nature, and all of a sudden, she, you know, she with 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 time, she had to tone it down a little bit, and, and it's like ah, oh, you know, you lose that, but the songs are still great. Well, with Shame, thankfully, I I really enjoyed this second album because I think British post punk is one of the greatest genres to come from the from the islands you know it, it is such a british sound even though other countries can do their own versions of it and and you know depending on their social structures there's something about the kind of punk made under those gray skies that just sounds authentic and real 
And I liked what The Guardian had to say about this album. Uh, I'm going to quote them. Uh, the themes it delves into, dislocation, boredom, the weirdness of a life that was in constant motion, suddenly turning static, the urge to fill time on your hands with hedonism, stand a better chance of hitting home with an audience that hasn't spent the last two years on the road than they ordinary than they ordinarily might. And it is true, you know, even though this, as you say, this is an album that you want to see live, I'm in that point where it's like, look, I'm, I've switched off into the expectation of going to live gigs and being able to thrust myself around in the audience, but I still need something good in my headphones to get me going in the mornings. But it's interesting what you say about post-punk, because that seems to almost have been the default sound for a lot of guitar bands for, for like the last... I don't know, like 20 years almost, yeah. you know, back when Block Party and Franz Ferdinand were first bringing it out. Like, that's a long, long time that you've had these kind of, like, angular guitar bands. And I don't know, I just wish they'd sort of take a bit of inspiration from, from somewhere else, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, David Bowie or, or, or something like that. It, it just seems that... I mean, like 20 years is a very, very, very long time, you know, to have this as, like, such a, uh, a predominant sound. And I don't think they're massively adding adding anything to it. But that's that. This is what I think the about British post punk. I think it's a canon that has to be maintained by bands that are teenagers and in their early twenties. And obviously, once they start to get older, they can start to become more ambitious in the studio and and all of a sudden make an album that is not as jittery, shall we say? You no, know, maybe more experimental, more more influenced by Brian Eno, for 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 uh, to name an example. But it, I think it's like something that young bands always have to step up to do first of all most of the great artists that you can think of including like, and, and and i'm talking about people like <laughs> even in pop like madonna everyone had started in a punk band bjork started in a punk band um i'm i don't know anyone you can think of uh stevie wonder okay <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyone? Sorry, no, I don't know. I was being annoying. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I need to. I need to define that a little bit better. But uh, you know, reading up on people's uh, biographies, it's like, damn, nearly everyone, even Duran Duran, started as a punk band. You know, a lot of art art school pop, shall we say? So every, everyone who's been in, been to art school and started a band mm, went through the punk band phase of DIYing it and everything. So it's a torch that has to be carried on and there's not much difference from shame's album to an album by the rakes which was another oh one of those oh my god the rakes i loved the rakes i think they're two especially their debut album capture release i think it's a solid classic in the canon of the best uh, post punk albums to come out of you know since gang of four since uh, magazine but you know that that is like almost the most reviled era of of sort of British music at the moment. Because there was a lot of landfill. Well, exactly. That's what I mean. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not saying it's fair, but it really, really was. And I've got to say, if Shame had, had come up around about the time of the rakes, I think they would have fit in fairly, fairly solidly into that. In fact... God, I mean, someone like the rakes... Did you remember they did that that, that grime song? Do you remember the whole Grindy phenomenon? Oh, I, I skipped that. The, I, there I, there I, was I, like a... It was a very, very, very short-lived phenomenon. Um, in which, like, you had bands like the Rakes working with grime MCs, and there was like a Grindy mixtape, which was uh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah, but look, I mean, my point is like, you're talking about shame, a band being less original now than the Rakes, okay? And the Rakes are not like a band. I mean, I've got nothing against them, and I'm glad you look back on them with with, with such uh, affection. But they are not generally very well seen. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, it's a bit unfair, yeah. But uh, but because they were lumped in with 
the whole landfill, I think. Exactly, exactly. Um, but one thing I did I, I did like about this album, and I, I think you, you picked this up as well, is the song uh, about uh, being basically coming home, uh, this song Born in Luton, but coming home from tour, and like the, the buzzer's not working, or some, no, one's, no one's like opening the door, basically, you're ringing on it, and that kind of like basically encapsulates a massive crisis. And I think something you've said is that that's something a lot of us are feeling these days, isn't it? It's just like, okay, we're going along fine. We're going along all right. You know, we're okay. There's a pandemic, but, you know, we're kind of doing doing our thing and we're getting by. And then a tiny thing happens. It's just like, oh, God, no, I've had enough. No one's opening the door. And I think that I, I really like the fact, I, I know a couple of views were like, why get so angry about that? But I, I like that sort of like massive overreaction because it's just like everything else spilling out, you know? Well, it's because, you know, th- th- that's what they said in The Guardian, no? A situation that was doubtless frustrating, but which perhaps didn't warrant commemorating with a song, particularly one that sets his predicament to five minutes of admittedly exciting, shouty punk funk and elevates it to matter of existential despair. I have suffered the same misfortune <laughs> of being locked out during lockdown. So I, I, I was walking the dogs and I was, a, you know, first of all, there was no one on the streets. I was, it was, it was in, in March, I think, right when we were all locked down. I was scared I was going to get fined by the police. It was raining. Uh, I didn't have my phone on me. It was, uh, it was, it was a moment of despair. Like, damn it, you know, my girlfriend wasn't going to be back for, for, for a few hours. None of the neighbors were opening the buzzer. And I swear, you can fall into a pit of despair. It is a first world woe. <laughs> it's compared to the, wor- the the horrible things that can happen in this world. It's silly. Uh, you know, you can just... But, you know, there wasn't a cafeteria I could go and wait in or everything was closed. And this is what I think constitute as great art. Being able to turn a song... You could write a book about that little first world war if you were a good writer, right? Uh, the whole thing about the, the, that moment. About being locked out of your house and what you do... If, you, if you're locked out for three hours... If if you could turn it into a book or a very long chapter, well, that's what the, you know. That's what makes great writers, right? When they can just, you know, uh, go into that frame of thought and stuff. These guys have obviously just made a punk song about it. I think it's it's very justifiable. Do you ever read? And I'm sorry for bringing this up yet again in the weekly review. Do you ever read Proust? Uh, no, I still, no, I'm not a Proust man. Well, you haven't gotten it in the last month. Good God. <laughs> um, uh, no, he, he, he makes very, very long books about very small moments. Like there's one moment in one of his books in which 10 pages pass between him deciding he's going to kiss someone and actually kissing them and just like, okay, okay, he's still thinking about it, still, still got those memories and he would do it immensely. I mean, like that wouldn't be a book, that would be a volume, getting locked out of his flat. So shame is Proustian. They have Proustian lyrics. Well, or in this case, you know, uh, for this song, <laughs> Born in Luton, it's a Proustian song. Proustian Luton. Proustian. <laughs> it's a new, new genre. Okay, you've won me round. You've won me round. Uh, shall we listen to a little bit more of Shame? Yes.
From South London, we take the tube back in time to the early 80s, where film director Steve McQueen sets one of his stories from of the West Indian community for his five-part film series, Small Axe, commissioned by the BBC. So far, they've released two films here in Spain, Mangrove, about the Mangrove Nine, a group of activists who stood trial for protesting against police harassment of black people and the constant raids on the famous Mangrove restaurant, which was a popular meeting spot for the West Indian community since the late 60s, until it finally closed its doors in 1992. The second film, titled Lover's Rock, is a visual portrayal of the kind of house party that black British people of Caribbean descent would attend in the early 80s. Since they uh, they were usually uh, barred from entering other clubs, they resorted to bringing their own sound system equipment into houses, put a price on the door, and in this film included some very delicious-looking chicken stews coming out of the kitchen. The film starts with the setting up of the party. The DJs are carrying in the equipment, the loudspeakers, etc., while three ladies are happily cooking away in the tiny kitchen, singing and vibing among the spicy aromas. The film then introduces one of the main female lead characters as she's heading to the party, and the film continues to show us basically what a night out was like. In these times of night curfews, it can be very pleasing to live vicariously through the characters on the screen, or it can be a giant case of FOMO angst, in my case. But nonetheless, the Caribbean movement around Jamaican sound systems has always elicited fascination, and rarely have we been treated to such a beautifully filmed account. And the soundtrack, wow, is just gorgeous. Uh, now, um, Ben, you haven't had a chance to see it, but my God, I think everyone's been it. talking about it. It's been one of those things. People have been like, "No, you've you've, you've got to see, you've got to see," and it sounds absolutely fabulous, like just my kind of thing. It's because there's not really much of a story, right? It's just pure vibe, you know, and it's just going from character to character, just having fun in this party with lit with the kind of situations that happen in a house party, um, and and there's a key moment that is amazing you know and, and it's a standout moment involving the song Silly Games sung by Janet Kay where people are dancing to it and director Steve McQueen stretches it out way past the original song's duration into a 10 minute sequence and you and you can tell this whole thing goes off script because an entire room full of people are in the zone of the song's mood and rhythm. And if you've ever been on a film set with extras in a celebration scene, like a wedding or a high school prom or a house party, usually the director will let the camera roll from different angles while people behave rather than act. And they will use the best bits to recreate a scenario that feels authentic, right? Well, the vibe in this sequence is so authentic you, you, you feel really good watching it because it transcends the time period. These actors and extras are so into it, I can just imagine McQueen gyrating behind the monitor, unable to shout cut because it flows so gracefully and it's just all, it's all gold. They should teach this sequence in film schools in, in a class on creating a vibe that feels authentic. It looks easy, but so many have failed. Well, this is this is what I'm going to say. Like so many bad scenes in films, like where music and, and nightclubs and parties are involved, it's such a difficult thing to capture. You know, you'd think it would be easy, but how many films have we seen? You know, with like the nightclub scene, it's just like well, people don't act like that in a nightclub. People don't move like that. You know, um, 
that I guess, as I said, I haven't seen this, but this has got this feel very correctly. That's very impressive indeed. It's like what's so hard about about a nightclub to to pin down? I guess it's like you feel a bit self-conscious with all the cameras around, you know. And I guess clubs are about getting away from that. They're about they're about darkness and they're about not being seen, you know. And people precisely not capturing what what you're doing, which makes it very hard. Plus, technically, there usually when you're shooting, there's no music because you know they add it afterwards in editing. So uh, I, I I did it once. I was a I was an extra. I can't remember if it was an ad or if it was a, a movie of a very. It must have been a bad movie because I, I don't remember. But I remember we were in a discotheque in a club, no music, and then they're like, "Okay, everybody dance," and you had to. They but didn't how- even give us a rhythm to. to and, but we were all more or less doing the same kind of. So you could hear our feet stomping. Like that, and it was a, f- a room full of people. It was quite an experience. Have you ever been to a silent disco? Yes, I've DJed at a silent disco. And now, that's I, amazing. I love that moment where you take off your headphones and you like you can just see people dancing like that. It's kind of the opposite. You can just you can feel like where the rhythm is, even when you could, when you can't feel anything. Sorry, yes. that's an aside. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was thinking. I've been thinking a lot about silent discos, uh, mainly for the, the as a solution for a lot of. Uh, clubs or small clubs in neighborhoods where you're bothering neighbors and stuff it's like silent disco should you know because hearing music on headphones okay ah, no no it's not the same thing no 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 I, we want the loudspeakers and in this film boy they do have some beautiful giant wooden loudspeakers you know those 70s loudspeakers that they dragged on in the 80s but ben can you tell us a little bit about the genre of lovers rock that the film so beautifully celebrates well lovers rock's really interesting because it's basically uh, one of the first genre of music that came out of a lot of people from Jamaica moving moving to Britain, specifically moving moving to London. So uh, basically, it came out like in in the seventies, and obviously reggae w- was getting big there. But like a lot of the reggae in Jamaica at the time was quite militant and quite hard. And f- specifically for these kind of parties in London, they wanted something a lot a lot softer. And that's where Lovers Rock came from. It's like uh, slower, and it's meant to be apolitical. Um, I mean, it's not entirely, but you know, I mean, whereas a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot of reggae is, is very strident in its looks. Lovers Rock is more about, you know, being in love, that that kind of thing. Um, so it's very interesting for that. And you know, a lot of big names come out of it, like like uh, Mad Professor. He came out of Lovers Rock. Um, Soul to Soul arguably came from that that sort of same tradition. Sade released an album called Lovers Rock uh, yeah. in in 2000. The Clash had a song. Uh, called Lovers Rock as well um, on London Calling, um, and again another thing is that it was um, it was quite female led. <clears throat> like a lot of the biggest artists uh, in Lovers Rock, particularly the ones uh, who who came from London, um, were women. Again, which was obviously not unheard of in in reggae at the time, but kind of. Um, I think you'd probably say most of the main Jamaican artists at the time were men. So it was just like this sort of new type of 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 reggae and, and again one of the very interesting because I think you know one of the most interesting things in music for me is like what's happened you know people who have come into Britain and, and brought sort of different sounds and kind of what's come out of them and you've got things like you know Jungle and you've got things like UK Garage and things like that well Lovers Rock was like an early example of you know people in Britain of you know often with Jamaican roots kind of taking that Jamaican thing and just making something slightly different with it which is why mm-hmm. I think it's very important kind of music well uh, you know I I, I, I wasn't uh, I was too young to go to a lovers rock party and, and in Spain there wasn't any at that time in the early 80s like they were happening in London but well, one thing to take into account to give you some context uh, dear listener is these kind of the, the kind of sound systems that would ha- that would c- happen as Ben says you know a lot of the songs were political and stuff and it would it would create 
dance floors where it was mainly occupied by men, right? Having their fun and stuff, and women cautiously kept to the sides. But when Lover's Rock became popular, well, according to legendary Dennis Bovell, you know, the Lover's Rock pioneer who wrote Silly Games, the song which is a key uh, a key song in this film, and, and he was also consulted on the whole project by McQueen. Well, changing this gender dynamic was something like a mission statement for the national genre. In his own words, Dennis Bovell's, we wanted to bring the girls to the front and make them the stars, he said, right? And it reminds me a little bit of what's been happening in dance floors in recent years when where reggaeton or electrocumbias have become so popular with female audiences. A lot of these lyrics are steamy and in some ways more emotional than, you know, some cold techno or even house music, right? Uh, well, house can be very romantic, of course, and techno, if, if you look deep enough. But I mean, these songs have lyrics that are that really do become poetic at some moments, no? And they can be raunchy. And um, El Perreo, for instance, the, 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 is a descendant from the kind of body gyrating that came from dancing Jamaican rocksteady. So in a brash comparison, both reggaeton perreo and dancehall twerking you know, if you think of it, they come from the same part of the world, same climates, the same attitudes, people who would celebrate the here and now, living in the moment and letting go of their primal instincts. And this in some way is, is reflected in Lover's Rock, even though it's not that kind of twerking, it's not that, that the rhythms aren't that aggressive, it's, it's slow paced, it's slow motion. And it's amazing to imagine like people dancing at three in the morning to such a slow rhythm. Like I've, as a as a DJ, I've I've always wanted to bring a slow vibe at the late hour because I think you've got to be confident. Oh, wow, you have uh, never I've never I've never succeeded in this country. People like rhythm and traya, and in the, in the south it's breakbeat. In the middle of the country it's hard techno, and in the north it's even harder. It's just impossible. Thank Unless you, Spain. You, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's, it's just it's just not possible. They don't smoke enough marijuana like in Jamaica. I don't know what it is. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Cliche alert. Cliche alert. We're sorry. sorry. Yeah, well, at least in this episode actually I don't yeah, you see them smoke a little bit in the film, but they don't that that uh, that might have been a deliberate thing like McQueen doesn't have like people smoking all the time or anything like, you know, to maybe to to break down that that trope of oh, Jamaicans all talking weed. <laughs> And the patois. The patois is very entertaining to try to decipher. Obviously, I watched it with subtitles. Um, but uh, it's interesting because the main character, the, the girl, uh, she speaks in patois when she's in the party, but then you catch her sometimes uh, speaking not, um, without a, such a strong Jamaican accent at some point denoting a character study where it's like look when they're amongst themselves you know uh, in her, when she's with her people in her you know in her vibing uh, she, she brings out her roots but then when she's taking the bus and stuff then she tones down the the accent I don't know I'd like to try and find a quote on that that's a very interesting little sort of thing shall we listen to a little bit of uh, Silly Games before we get Mara on the phone oh yes
wonderful moment. It's, 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 it, it appears twice in the movie, or th maybe a third time even. But there, and, and there's a moment where she, she's trying to. There, she sings in a very high pitch, and I don't, don't want to spoil it for anyone. Please, everyone, try and get yourselves to watch Lovers Rock. Anyway, now it's time to talk about uh, the remix. <laughs> we want to hear what we, uh, what Mar Viverdu thinks of remixes. What's what's the use? You know, to her generation, what do remixes They've mean? They've been getting her goat, haven't they? Mm -hmm. They've been getting her goat. They've been annoying her this week, yeah. which is good. Well, you know. Ma? Hi. Hello from the other side. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody COVID. Um, we, we, we've had to, we've been forced to once again shut down our studios partially and keep restrictions for safety reasons. But Mar is bringing... It's not going to stop us. Nothing's going to stop us from bringing you the, new, the, the freshness, delivering. Mar, what's been, what's been eating your head this week? Okay, so going back to the topic of Ariana's, but in this case, Ariana Grande. Yes. She has been on the news once again because she hinted at the remix, at the coming out of 3435, like the biggest song on her album. And it was with, with two other big artists. So we were excited. She was hyping it up. And we now know it's with Miss Doja Cat and Megan the Stallion. Wow. So it was like, yes, please, Ariana, give it to me. The holy trinity <laughs> of music, the most powerful women in the music industry. I can wait. This remix is going to be the best. Um, combining all these powerful women in a song, it, it's going to make an undeniable number one, right? That's what was going through my mind when she dropped the, the the bomb news of this remix. Well, I listened to it when it came out. It just didn't hit for me. And and I think I'm not the only one. Like it's not bad bad as in bad like the seven rim, rings remix with to change bad a, mm -hmm. a remix we will never <laughs> talk about. It's going to be hidden in the dark and, and we will uh, act like it didn't exist exist it's not that kind of bad it's it's more like it just left me thinking like was this necessary did we really need this remix like this song 3435 is already a very good song is this something we needed to hear even if it's with two other big powerful women like doja cat and megan Thee stallion like it, it's just a clear example that mixing three good things and really really good things like this these three artists doesn't exactly mean that you're gonna get a even better result like it's not like a mathematic equation like for example i love chocolate i love pasta i love a freshly squeezed oranges but i'm not <laughs> gonna mix all these things together expecting like the best flavor of of everything i i it, it just doesn't make sense. Hang on, Mar. Let me ask no. you a question. Do you get very uh, deceived? Uh, do you do you get very depressed when you order fresh orange juice and they open a plastic bottle, like in a hotel of or in course. a bar? Of course, that's criminal. You just have to put that person in jail. <laughs> you have to squeeze the orange, <laughs> and the orange has to be sweet and and oof. don't get me started with oranges. <laughs> Continue, please. <laughs> Sorry for derailing. Yeah, this. 
I just felt like mixing, you know, the feeling, maybe you don't if you're not a, an obsessed orange juice fan. I think like I am, but <laughs> once nope, you nah. drink oranges and then you brush, no, first you brush your teeth and then you drink oranges, it just leaves you feeling like very bad because the mint and the orange just doesn't go together. That's, yeah. that's how I felt with 34, 35. It just left me with the, I shouldn't have brushed my teeth before drinking these oranges. And it's not the only remix out there that makes you feel like this, like a brushing your teeth oranges kind of thing. Like, uh, it got me thinking of other remixes that left me with this sensation. Like, for example, the, the clearest one and one of the most recent ones is Blinding Lights with Rosalia and The Weeknd, obviously, the, the author of this song. Like, they're both amazingly talented artists. We love them. The song was a, a hit. It was the biggest song of 2020. But the remix, it, it just was a weird combination it, and not in a good sense. It just, it made sense because they're very good, but... <laughs> I know I didn't I didn't I didn't understand like the song had already been a hit for some months I didn't understand like I think this is a trend that might have started with Despacito where even though the hit is well known and stuff when they added Justin Bieber on I think it it incremented its popularity a little bit more in certain territories in certain territories but it didn't really work that's a classic example like they all thought well the Justin Bieber one's going to be the big ones people don't really care it just feels a bit like throwing enough crap at the wall to see what sticks you know and even when something's stuck even when you've got like a really big hit it's like oh, okay well like let's just do this a bit more and like Ma you said it's not mathematical but like in a way it it, it feels like mathematics like big person plus big person plus big person equals even even bigger kind of yeah. hit you know and it feels like very much mathematical uh, calculation rather than anything else. It's just so sort of cynically music industry yeah. uh, that I'm not surprised. It's like it it, remi- it takes me back to the days when artists, big artists, where they saw that they had a massive potential, uh, they would connect with a large part of the population of their country. They decide to sing like Julio Iglesias. They'd sing the same album entirely in Chinese, uh, sorry, in Cantonese, uh, in Dutch, in German, in Spanish. Uh, sorry, in English, not in English. Uh, it's because Julio Iglesias, I think he's touched every language in, in with some of his big-selling albums. Craftwork also did this. So uh, Craftwork? Yeah, they did an album in Esperanto. Well, they did some songs in Esperanto. <laughs> well, for, they used to sing in German, and then they switched to English, didn't they? Uh, not if you go and see them in Germany. If they... Oh, wait. Craftwork sing in German in Germany? Yeah. They don't, like, the robots, they don't... Or the model is sung in German, right? No, no, no. Wow. Toma ya. Uh, I think I might have uh, slightly gone overboard when I said Craftwork did an album uh, in Esperanto. One member of Craftwork, uh, formerly, <laughs> did uh, an album uh, called Esperanto. Yeah, but that's not commer- a commercial kind of thing. That's more of an artistic whim. <laughs> no, I, no, I was, I was being. But like Craftwork did albums in loads of different things. Like you can, you can find. I think there's some Spanish language Craftwork albums somewhere if you look hard enough. Yeah. Well, there's that Señor Coconut uh, cover oh, album. Oh God, that's the worst album. <laughs> oh, in the history it was huge of the here. We. L- <laughs> we are the robots that's so bad that's just like buying rubbish shoes from an expensive shoe shop oh i quite i quite loved i quite like i enjoyed it for it for its time i think he even played sonar and everything he 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 had yeah he enjoyed some popularity he was big in spain shall we say senor coconut um sorry mar Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah getting back on the topic of remixes and songs that i actually know Um, but yes then i don't agree because it's not a mathematical equation like it not even the music industry gains anything from this to me at least it seems because 
if it was a mathematical equation and it meant like oh a million streams in a day because it, they're just combining their powerful music talent and making it yeah, just the same number in streams that it would make sense like it's not a good song but it gets lots of track and and stuff but it, it doesn't even get that because people just don't vibe with it so they don't listen to it so maybe if, and then i thought okay am i just against remixes like just <laughs> don't do it and don't risk it don't don't do a blinding lights with Rosalia. Don't do a Despacito with Justin Bieber. Don't do bad guy with Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber. Don't don't. Don't do anything with Justin Bieber. Bieber. That's what you're saying. It it. Uh, I uh, I lost track of thought, but uh, <laughs> you're just saying yeah, don't yeah, do yeah. remixes. I'm not against remixes. That's what I wanted to say. I'm not a remix anti person because there's a a point in history in pop history that is that marked a, a very important, I don't know, new era, which is Old Town Road remixes. The, there's like a thousand of them. Oh, they them, just kept on coming, didn't they? Yeah. And, and it, it just means that you can do something crazy like that and, and it's going to work. And maybe if it's unexpected, like there's from BTS to Diplo to Young Thug to Cupcake rapper, everyone's done the remix, and he wanted to make a, a remix also with Peppa Pig. So, like, <laughs> if you think crazy, and, and using of the chemistry that's gonna go on on the song, then go for it. Then do a thousand remixes of of your own song. But I just I I think it, there's a lot playing in thinking of a remix and more than the streams the artist has on their own and the success they, they have on their own. It, it has to work with the song, with the other artists and why does not, why do, like the music industry does not think about that? Like, I'm, I'm, am I crazy or I don't know? I think it's a question of also it, it's cheap. Like it doesn't cost anything to take the masters of a song and send them to whoever else in, in any part of the world. And it's like, see what you do with it. And sometimes it might stick, sometimes not. Think of Lika Lee's uh, I Follow Rivers. I mean, the remix, I think, was way more popular than the original song. And what? That was just send the, the, the clippings to the magician and all of a sudden he put his magic dust to it and it is still like, it is it has become a wedding classic, wedding DJ set classic. You can hear it all over the place. And I think labels, since they, they, they go by numbers, you know, it's like, look, it's not like we have to pay for studio time or we have to pay for anyone, you know, just get your microphone, put some vocals on. It's a cheap way of generating more content and uh, yeah. and, and having another promotional uh, asset, shall we say, which is why it sounds so soulless. It's nice when you think that, you know, Shakira took an airplane and went to Beyonce's house and they had breakfast together and they had this thing where they, you know, where two humans create bonded and they created something. That's that's the beauty of when, of the of a, of a remix or a collaboration or a featuring. But Did you ever hear the story about uh, Apex Twin and Lemonheads? No, he was he he uh, was meant to remix Lemonheads. Huh. He forgot, and huh. so when someone <laughs> turned up at his front door asking for the dat tape of his remix, he just went into a studio, got anything, and g gave it to them, and claimed that he, what he'd done is he'd put the Lemonheads song on a loop and like gone to sleep to it, and <laughs> basically dreamed up a remix and put it down. What a genius! <laughs> and he admitted that years later. Oh my god! I'm not sure if it ever came out. That's a uh... 
That's anyway. the good thing of being like an, a, an artist like uh, Aphex Twin. You know, anything you put your name to it, even if you just sort of sample, you know, a garbage truck and just tweak it a little bit, it's like, and just say, this is the Lemonhead remix. The fans are going to, you know, consume it. They're going to like it. It's like, oh, because it's in his modus operandi, you know, I guess. I don't know. But we're going to have to go. Yeah. Mar, thank you for bringing in the, the ray of sunlight, as you always do. Um, Thank you for having me from Exile. <laughs> we hope you enjoy a midday orange juice, freshly pressed. Thanks. You, I will. I will most definitely, and but, not mix it with any other weird things just by itself. Yeah, because do you have that thing of you know how horrible orange juice tastes after drinking coffee? Are you also quite specific about the order of which you I drink? obviously know the mistake not to make. Like <laughs> first oranges, then the rest. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marvai Verdu. See you back in the studio next week. Uh, yeah. and uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to the weekly review. It's been a pleasure going live. Ben, anything else to add? Love's rock, Apex Twin, Lemonheads. All those good things. Ciao. See you next week. I wait till the birds sing. I cut a roll, step out. In an instant, it's over. I'm done. There's a tiny piece of you, I say. Just enough, bro. Just enough.